0: Join Dr. Sarah Howard and her guests as they dive into the world of integrative veterinary medicine on the new Pure Animal podcast. Dr. Howard interviews practitioners, researchers, and industry professionals at the forefront of their fields with the aim of advancing pet well-being. Search for Pure Animal in your favorite podcast app. At Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining us on the line today is Dr. Brad McEwan. He's a nutrition expert, naturopath, herbalist, educator and lecturer, researcher and mentor with over 19 years clinical experience. He received his Doctor of Philosophy in Medicine from the University of Sydney, a Master of Health Science in Human Nutrition from Deakin Uni amongst other qualifications. Brad has numerous original research and review articles published in peer-reviewed journals, and he's also a peer reviewer for international journals. His research interests include the effects of diet and nutrition on cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, cardiometabolic syndrome, depression, anxiety, polycystic ovarian syndrome, cognition, chronic diseases, sports nutrition, omega-3 antioxidants, chronic disease prevention, and public health. Brad has a strong passion for seeing people succeed and achieve their goals. He also enjoys chocolate. Welcome back to FX Medicine, Brad. How are you?
1: I'm very well today. How are you?
0: Good. Thanks, mate. Now, today we're going to be talking about something which I'd like some help on, pyrol disorder. So in yes. the in the recent years, there's been a lot of social media attention and even clinical attention given to pyrrole disorder. But let's go back in time when did this disorder or the naming of this first appear?
1: Uh, that's a very good question because a lot of people think that it is a, a new disorder, but there's a lot of literature showing, you know, in the past, even back as far as 1929, 1935, 1936, showing up about you know what are pyrols? Because you'll find that the condition itself is typically referred to or colloquially referred to as pyrols, which is incorrect. So. One of the interesting things we're finding is that for over a hundred years, you know, scientists have been researching, you know, different molecules that they find. And they've found these porphyrin-based compounds. And it's available in all different organisms, not just humans. They've been finding them in plants. And what the molecules are, they're talking a little bit about biochemistry for a second. They're these compounds that are made up of four pyrrole subunits. So I want you to think of like a spider's web or a net. And the pyrrole subunits hold a lot of molecules together. Now, fast briefly to today, a lot of medications are actually made with a pyrrole subunit to actually bind up the chemical structure of the medication. So if we look at the history, the word pyrrole has been named for over 100 years. They've been looking at a lot of research in the presence of how this actually combines with aldehydes and other molecules to form chemicals and molecules in our body. And one of these molecules actually is chlorophyll in plants, which I find quite interesting. It's oh. also found in the heme. So, you know, the hemoglobin in our red blood cell. So it, it is a molecule that is quite readily available in nature, but also readily available in the body. And the body actually, I won't say produces these molecules, but it utilizes these molecules to, for example, make red blood cells or bind up other proteins and use it as a structural net. I find that quite interesting. Um, another area that they just look at is theme, as I was saying, and even vitamin B12, which I'll talk more about in a moment. So the interesting thing is pyroles are natural, to use the term pyroles. They're capable of forming all these different bonds and sort of aldehydes, carboxyl groups, hydroxyl groups. And a lot of the time, the pyrrole may actually be in the nuclei of the molecule or actually be like in the spider's web, binding it all together. Right. They're also able to combine with other metals and minerals such as cobalt, iron, and magnesium.
0: Can you expand further on these minerals? So you've got cobalt, iron, magnesium in chlorophyll, iron in heme, cobalt in the cobalamin molecule. Any others or can you expand further on them?
1: These are the main ones, but um, what we're finding um, with near research, because the research really started to take off in the 70s when they're finding um, elevated pyrols in um, people's urine with schizophrenia, for example, and I'll talk more about that at the moment. Um, So the interest, to think, what else do these molecules do? So it actually does bind with the cobalt molecule in the structure of vitamin B12, binds it and holds it together. And I want you to think that cobalt is in the central core of the B12 molecule, and going back to the statement as an example of a spider's web, holds the cobalt within the B12 molecule. Now, that could be a cyanocobalamin or the activated form of methylcobalamin, for example. Whatever form it is, it actually holds the structure Mm. of that cobalt within the B12 molecule. The heme one is actually really interesting here where yeah. As we know, heme is generated by iron molecules being put together into this structure, which is heme. But this is actually a tetrapyrole structure, so it has four pyroles holding together the heme within the molecule, uh, the iron, I should say, into the molecule heme. So, again, it's like this spider's web structuring and holding it together. Iron is involved, of course, with hemoglobin, myoglobin, catalase, cytochromes and other enzyme pathways in the body. And the pyrrole molecule seems to be able to hold it structurally intact so it can do its job. So there's a lot more um, structural and functional aspects to the pyrrole molecule, but what we're finding interesting is it's actually able to hold things together much more effectively, so hence the using it in medications.
0: Do you remember the not-too-distant, quite recent issue with... um cobalt toxicity from prostheses, from hip prostheses. Yes. Do you find or has there been any research done looking at increased to, um in the body's attempt to trap the excess cobalt?
1: I haven't seen any of that literature, but it's a very interesting question. Hmm. One of the things you will notice, though, is pyrroles the molecule, reacts to oxidative stress and inflammation and can actually create it as well. So thinking of the cobalt in the hip replacement in, in that actual structure of the the metal um, being, let's say, leached out into the system, I suspect the person's pyrrole content in the urine, which I'll talk about testing later, um, will increase because any kind of inflammation, stress, physical, mental, emotional stress, or um, oxidative stress in a person increases the pyrrole content. Yeah. So I haven't seen any research on that, but it'd be quite interesting because these um, hip replacements and joint replacements are a relatively new thing. Um, And, of course, it's foreign to the body. Yeah. So it would actually be interesting to see how the body responds. We already know it's inflammation, but how the body responds biochemically with pyrrole molecules and other molecules that are similar.
0: So I guess we need a definition here. What is pyrrole disorder? I've got a secondary question there, and that is... Do you think pyrols are a target or a marker of something else going wrong?
1: Uh, that's a very good question. Um, to date, there is no real definition of pyrol disorder. Right. If you actually look it up, um, and I, I mean like up in medical journals, etc., you find it in a lot of social media where there's a lot of um, claiming of the disorder, and it's very copy-paste, which upsets me a little bit as a practitioner. But the way I describe pyrol disorder to me is it's a very complex biochemical disorder. There's a lot of things going on. And sometimes I actually change the words around as in disordered pyrrole metabolism. Because one thing I want to remind everyone is everyone has pyroles. It's a natural molecule and the condition itself has several different names. It's referred to colloquially as pyrroles it's actually misspelt several different ways. So the proper way to spell it is P-Y-R-R-O-L-E. I've seen it with a double L and a double E and a (laughs) double Y. And and that's because there's no set standard on the disorder itself. I'm sure we'll see it in the next five years because it's becoming more popular. Um, It's more popular to have. Um, So we'll find a proper definition. But the way I, I look at it is... It is a real condition. It is disordered pyrrole metabolism. And it can actually be tested by measuring the urine, and I'll talk more about this in a moment, by measuring a molecule called HPL. And the HPL stands for hydroxy-hemopyrolin-2-1. And sometimes, it depends on what textbooks that you look at. Um, It's quite a long one. And what this is, this is a hydroxylated form Of a pyrrole molecule of a lactone. So it's quite a complex molecule. And the way how it works is, you know, the body responds to a stress, it gets released, and it goes through the urine. But what I'd like to do is, um, if I may, spend a little bit of time briefly talking about what the HPL molecule is.
0: Yeah, please do.
1: Perfect. So the HPL molecule um, was first detected in the late 1950s, and it was originally called Moe Factor because of the colour of it. So when they um, investigated, because when you think about it, we've had a long history of measuring substances in the body. If you go back over hundreds and thousands of years, there was even like diabetes. You took someone's urine, had to of a smell, which we don't think about right now, and that if it was a sweet smell, for example, that termed it diabetes mellitus or sweet urine. Um, so we've always been interested in measuring different molecules. And there was this research done in the late 1950s that found um, a higher incidence of this MO factor in the urine of psychiatric patients. So they had like bipolar disorder, very severe schizophrenia. And what they did was they measured all the patients that were in this institution and found out the ones with the higher level of psychiatric conditions, so to say, has higher levels of this no factor. So it's sometimes referred to as that, but the proper terminology is HPL or the hydroxyheme molecule. There's actually another molecule in the urine called cryptopyrrole, which mistakenly gets used as a marker. Yeah, so HPL. They're very similar structural markers, and currently there's research going on in Australia around the world. Um, measuring urine of people who are healthy and who have all different mental health issues. There's, I think, one going up, up in Queensland, as we speak. And um, they're looking at, do these levels change? And as far as now, they're looking at all the different molecules. So it'd be interesting to see if the HPL and the cryptopyrrole, which are definitely different molecules, actually increase. Now, the interesting thing with this molecule is it can show up in a number of different health conditions just regularly problem of iron deficiency can have an increase in the HPL molecule because they're not producing enough red blood cells, so the red cells are getting older, being broken down, and then being excreted through the urine. Unstable hemoglobin, they may have had some kind of accident or um, hemolysis, may have had surgery, it's increased. The interesting thing about this molecule, it's very highly labelled. It's very hard to study. It's unstable outside the body. Exposure to light, sunlight, reduces the detectability of the HVL molecule. If you yeah. don't use the right tubes at the lab, um, if it's not covered by these, all the different things that can change it. So, any kind of light affects it. So, effectively, when you collect the urine from the patient, has to be in a darkened room. And then, effectively, straight away, put into a um, collection cylinder. Covered um, with foil. Foil. Yep. Yeah, put the foil around it, um, several layers of it because the light can still get through the foil. Then you have to refrigerate or even freeze it until it gets to the um, storage site for it to be tested. And the interesting thing is the molecule breaks down over time. So if you actually have a sample collected on a Thursday, Friday, and it has to go to a um, lab, it may be sitting in um, a collection centre from over the weekend and it gets sent off on Monday or even Tuesday and the sample's pretty much, um, it's not going to give you an accurate reading. So we always suggest people to um, go and get a collection sample maybe on a Monday or Tuesday, like earlier in the week. That way at least you know by the end of the week it's gone to the right centre and a lot of um, collection centres these days are very good because they can speed up the samples, as in sending them off quickly. Yeah. Um, but they are very unstable and... Heat, light, even if you shake it, like if you put it down on the container too rough, but not throwing it down, but you know, I mean, putting it down heavily, that can actually destabilize the molecule. Just because someone's collecting blood to the platelets. So
0: so and to they, me like and they throw it sorry, to to me, like that just makes the testing almost untenable because you can't guarantee what's gonna happen in freight. There's so much that can go wrong with user collection, so to me, I guess that that really explains to me why the test itself is frowned upon. By the orthodox test medical is people. Frowned yeah.
1: upon, Yeah, uh, and because there's no um, stability data on it, so to say, the safety, like, is the person stressed going into the test? The stress releases pyro molecules, so that can increase it. They may have run to get their collection they may have had to run to urinate because they've got a weak bladder. And, you know, <laughs> Bouncing up and down. All these, oh, that's right. All these <laughs> kind of things increase the levels. And um, I'll talk about the test now further. Um, typically in Australia and um, other countries, they look at around about 2 to around 20 micrograms per litre. That's what they're looking at with the um, amount that in the urine. Now, the issue with that, and that's been a, a standard for like 15 years. Um, the issue with that is everyone has pyrols in their urine. So everyone has the condition pyrourea based on definition. Yeah. But any kind of stress, tiredness, poor diet, anything can alter the test. So whenever I look at a test result, and let's just say it's 20 to 25, I just look at it and go, okay, good, thanks. Do you know what I mean? Because it's sort of like, oh yes, you got detectable HPL molecule in the urine. You own a little bit of stress. That's okay. But if it's fifty and above, that's when I actually start, you know, thinking about it. Because you know the half life of the HPL molecule is ten to twelve hours. So every ten to twelve hours, the content in urine decreases. So if someone has a level of fifty. Yeah,
0: you know, when I was compared, higher.
1: Right. It could have been 100, for example, or much higher. Right. But if someone comes to me and it's like a level of 10 or 25, yes, it would have been potentially much higher. But based on our knowledge of half-life, the lower number would have been very high to start with because the sample has been collected in the last couple of days. So we can say it's relatively safe as a diagnosis. If someone comes in the borderline, they wouldn't have been that high to start with. But I've seen numbers are very high. Um, I'll talk about research in a moment, but I'll numbers of 100, 200, 300, for example. And these people are perfectly healthy. Right. So it's it, it's a weird thing how people utilize one test and then go, okay, you're, you're, you've got pyrols, And although they actually are correct, <laughs> they actually do have pyrols as in the molecule. Yeah. They may not actually have pyrol disorder. Yeah. Because... Um, any of those factors we just talked about could just change those results, and that's why we need more trials on healthy people versus, you know, people with anxiety, depression, um, schizophrenia, chronic fatigue, like all different health conditions and different ages, just so we can start getting baseline numbers, <coughs> like what they've done with, you know, liver function tests and blood cell counts over the years. It's an accumulative data. Once we have that information, we can then turn around and say. Now we've got a test that's got some validity behind it and we can utilize it. I'm not saying don't use the test. I'm just saying don't rely on one test. If it's really high or really low, retest in a couple of days. Yes, it costs money because it's not covered by Medicare. But if you're focusing your treatment plan using this disorder or this molecule, which I suggest people don't – it's quite tricky just to base it
0: on one test. To me, it smacks of a test that really should be done in the clinic. It's it, To me, it's kind of like you know, uh, using the WIF test to look at bacterial vaginosis. It's done right there yeah. and then. You don't send that test away. You do it there. Um, you use other tests to confirm or deny it if, if required. Usually, that's a clinical presentation. I get it. But um, yeah. I can fully understand why orthodox medical practitioners would would poo-poo this test because they can't reproduce it. There's no standard. There's no stratification of normal versus ill. Um, so how do you how do you use it as a benchmark for treatment? It becomes artifact.
1: It does. There's a big artifactual result with this. Um, I want you to imagine that Yeah, you know, this is quite an emotive topic because people are normally stressed when they come in with this because they've read it online or something. And let's just imagine you've gone to a GP you've got a um, liver function test, get your blood collected. You go back tomorrow, get your blood collected. Go back the next day, get your blood collected. It's going to be relatively stable reading, would you agree? Relatively. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Relatively stable. It's not going to change too much. But if you did this with the urine test, the HPL molecule, it is directly based on what they're doing that day. So if they have a far more relaxed day or a day running around, it's going to change the results. They may have an emotional stress that day, find out they didn't pass an exam, or you know what I mean. Like, yeah. untenable. Um,
0: no reproducibility. Yeah. yeah.
1: No re- reproducibility. It's going to change most days, and if the results change plus or minus five percent, I'm just making that number up for example. Yeah. Um, I'd be relatively happy with that because plus or minus five percent of someone with a reading of fifty is not that much. Mm. But if someone comes in one day and they've got a, a level of fifty micrograms per litre, tomorrow it's twenty five, the next day it's a hundred. Yeah. That that to me, yes, it is related to it's a good marker of ups and downs in someone, but we can't actually just treat based on that one molecule. Yeah. We have to look at a lot of other tests.
0: As you as you say, like you could understand a certain variance from, you know, different pieces of equipment, um, from even different labs um, using different reference ranges. Um, they're not wildly different, but you will you will get some difference. And then, of course, you get the expert clinician that can pull apart a test, line it up with the clinical picture and go, that that's rubbish, do the test again. And I've seen that.
1: That's it. And, and labs have, like you said, all different reference ranges, different equipment, and that's because the, the test is not a... Um regular test. Not Mm. everyone can do it. Mm. So you're relying on, let's just say, a handful of labs who can do it effectively. And that doesn't allow for consistency of results.
0: Nor obviously testing in the clinic.
1: Testing in the clinic. So if you did it in your own clinic, you're not going to have the equipment to start with um, to measure this because it's the chromatographs and yeah, it's expensive equipment. Um, So they're not able to easily test for it in their own clinic. And then it's up to the clinician if they did it right. So there's variability between clinicians as well. So I think with research, um, we need to really, if we want to delve deeper into this health condition, because it is real, we need to actually start looking at a handful of labs, sending off multiple samples to those labs, and doing the old consistency Split. test. Yeah. So you have one sample, send the required amount to five labs under um, Joe Blogs or whatever. It's not the right way to do science, but split sampling, set it all off and get the information done. And one of the um, things that does concern me is with the results of this, um, not scientific research but online research, as people call it, is with a lot of genetic tests, because um, some people are calling pyroids for the genetic because it can not pass through families, um, people are not giving the right information. I've seen... Um, You know, a 50-year-old or 40-year-old female, for example, gives the test samples of her own blood or urine, for example, Mm. or saliva, and write down her 10-year-old daughter's name on it. So therefore, we got a perimenopausal female with the age of 10 on the test result, and the labs are going, what's going on with these hormones? And now they're collecting data. It's quite rife in um, online land. Um, with the misinformation of tests and people worried about their tests being hacked or something. Mm. So, you know, this is where we need to have the research done, proper scientific research, so to say, universities, hospitals and labs all working together and actually, you know, thinking about this test, what is the validity of it, what is the specificity, are we measuring the right molecule? You know, the old questions we always ask. What is the proper range we're looking at? Because everyone does produce pyrols in the urine. There is enough information on that. But should we be shifting up that 2 to 25 reference range to maybe 25 to 50 or below 50 as being normal, for example, or within reference range? Because a lot of the tests, I don't do it with a lot of patients because I already expect it's going to be in there because it's just due to person stress. Um, but anything under 50, as I was saying earlier, I don't really. Use it as a treatment
0: goal. So, are there any surrogate markers that you'd use um, instead of this or additional markers? On the basis of what you've told me today, I'd be going, hmm, you know, you're going to, you want the patient to pay money for this and it's not repeatable. How are you then going to say, I'm going to do another test and you're better? (laughs) Like, how, there's no, how do you then um, verify, um, how do you ratify it?
1: That's right. Like how can we verify these tests? And that's what concerns me. We've got some people, um, qualified and unqualified, using this test that is relatively expensive because it's not covered by Medicare, and they keep sending them off for tests and keep prescribing hundreds of dollars worth of supplements in the hope this person gets better, like a shotgun effect, because the test itself is not giving you a lot of information. So what I'd like to do, I'd like to answer your question about surrogate tests. But I'd also like to talk a bit more about the research that has been done, which then leads us to our surrogate test. So around the world, there is research on pyrrole disorder and its effects, particularly with um, mental health. But these are done in small, selective groups. There's the Walsh Institute in the States. Um, There's a couple of um, centers in Russia, but they're sort of spread out, but smaller groups. And they're let's just say, a handful of research institutes doing the research, which to me I think is great, but it's not enough data to actually turn around and say, you know, this is a condition we need to invest more in, of course, but also with the treatment aims. So thinking nutritionally first, to answer your question, um, with the research that's been done, they're, they're looking at, you know, the HPL molecule in the urine and then looking at other markers such as vitamin B6 and zinc, for example. Because what you'll find it's very interesting is the HPL molecule, the pyrrole, I should say, the pyrrole molecule itself has an affinity for vitamin B6 and for zinc. Yeah. Now, what it does, um, it utilizes the vitamin B6 or the activated form of vitamin B6, um, pyridoxal 5-phosphate or PLP, to metabolize the pyrrole molecule more effectively. So what that does, actually, um, let's just say, it uses up a little bit more B6 in the body and combines it up as well as part of the molecule as a structural and functional unit of the pyrrole molecule. The pyrrole molecule also, as part of its metabolism and structure, can use up eight, let's call them, molecules of zinc per pyrrole. So if you think about it, a molecule of zinc is quite small And when we look at clinical practice, we might prescribe 30 milligrams of zinc. That's not a molecule. That's just a dosage of zinc. Mm. But if each pyrrole molecule starts collecting up eight molecules of zinc, I'm just trying to think of a better way to explain it, but we're effectively using up eight molecules of zinc for the pyrrole that's not being metabolized effectively and also binding up vitamin B6. So with the tests they've been doing, they've been finding – relationships with higher the um, HPL molecule in the urine, the um, lower amount of vitamin B6 activity in the body itself, particularly in red blood cells. They've also been looking at um, higher levels of HPL molecule in the urine and lower levels of concentration of zinc in the red blood cells and the white blood cells. This can lead to anemia in the future, um, weakened immune response, cold flus, chronic fatigue, et cetera. And they're also finding it, um, a relationship with glutathione. Now, you know glutathione is a, an antioxidant and sort of detoxifying molecule. So again, the higher the HPL molecule, the lower the plasma content of glutathione. And some of that research is very highly significant, like p-values of less than 0. 0.0001 kind of significant level. And they've also been finding you know, just a slightly abnormal HPL level of urine In the urine, I should say, there's a lower level of normal range of glutathione in the plasma. So they don't have a glutathione deficiency as such, because you can have that as a health condition, mm. but it's at the lower end of the reference range of glutathione. And then the person gets an extra stress or something else is happening, and that really affects them. Yeah. Uh, You Uh, know, I guess
0: conundrums within themselves, because, like for instance, zinc is compartmentalised. So, uh, the the analogy is, looking at a car park in a shopping centre does not tell you how busy the highway is near it. Um, That's right. Yeah. So it, it, I'm just looking at a paper here. It's an older paper, Rapid Screening Test for Pyrolyuria, 1R, um, Useful in Distinguishing a Schizophrenic Subpopulation. This is in the Journal of Orthomolecular Psychiatry, January 1974. First author is yep. Solar S-O-H-L-E-R. And um, what they're looking at is these other acceptable urinary markers like urobilindogen. endrogen.
1: Um, yes. Should we be looking at this? And and that's a very good point because um, when we look at the high levels of HPL or pyrrole disordered metabolism, it can lead to anemia because it affects the iron metabolism because of the heme component Mm. as well. So any kind of red blood cell test could start giving you an indication. The urobilinogen content can also let us know. I always ask for a plasma zinc serum copper because what I'm looking at is are they within reference range? And it's, I can hear people right now debating me <laughs> listening to the podcast. Um, is the plasma zinc serum copper within reference range? If so, whereabouts? Because we're looking at ratios as well.
2: Yeah.
1: Now, if someone has a lower end zinc, high-end copper, it's still within reference range. I will always look at wherever it's sitting in the reference range. But when it starts becoming out of balance further, we are looking at the conundrum of the zinc molecule being uptaken more with the disordered pyrrole metabolism and the copper as an inverse relationship of the zinc increasing because zinc metabolizes copper and copper metabolizes zinc. There's a you know, symbiotic relationship with these two minerals that um, people forget about. They actually need each other for metabolism. But when the zinc deficiency occurs, copper levels go up. And then when the copper level goes up, not able to metabolize the zinc effectively because it's too high, leading to oxidative stress, which then leads to more pyrrole molecules or HPL molecules being produced, and so on, is that churning cycle. And what we're finding is that this binding up of the zinc and B6, among other nutrients like the heme that we're just talking about, can further amplify this condition by leading to further deficiencies, which then leads to other metabolism issues. So um, I can follow on from that study that you just talked about because a lot of the research is actually based in, let's just say, more severe um, psychiatric conditions. Yeah. So there was a study that found um, the level of um, HPL molecule was higher than 20 micrograms per deciliter. I said liter earlier, sorry, it's per deciliter, sorry. 20 micrograms per deciliter, Um, what we're looking at here, they have 48% had um, ADHD of those patients. There was 22% had schizophrenia, 30% had bipolar and depression, and a further 26% just had random diagnoses of just like stress and anxiety, etc.
2: Right.
1: And this is where people just you know, within the range of what we classify as healthy is 2 to 25. So, again, going back, is this marker useful if people with severe or serious health conditions show up within range? Yeah. Um, There was another study where, um, and this one's quite interesting, there was a um, study that had a couple hundred people, 66% male, 34% female, which makes sense when they're looking at ADHD as well. Mm. Um, the age range in the study was 2.7 to 25 years of age, let's just say 2.5 to 25 years of age. That were followed for a bit of time. 65% of those patients had a level higher than 20 micrograms per deciliter. So again, a large proportion of the people had higher than the reference range yeah. already is. Yeah. The highest level was in that study was a 10-year-old boy with 481 Um, A five-year-old girl had 192. So there's actually quite high amounts. And this is where it gets a bit emotive for some people. They see the high number and they get stressed and freaked out if it's their own child or themselves. I've seen these high numbers and the person I'm going to say to you is relatively healthy. You know, they don't get any colds, flus, there's no fatigue, there's no well, relatively stressed, of course, like everyone in this planet. But there's actually no physical, emotional, or mental stresses on this person that's representing, but they have higher levels.
2: Mm.
1: So is the test invalid in that person? Do you get a bit light or something on it? Or, do you know what I mean? Like,
2: yeah, absolutely. They
1: running in, like one of my favorite examples is someone's running late for a um, blood test. So they're driving, they're stressed, they park the car, they're running, get their blood collected, and their platelet activity and platelet counts up through the roof because they've activated everything because they're running away from that saber-toothed tiger or the fight-or-flight response. Yeah, yeah. Same thing with this. But I will say there is a handful of conditions that have actually been associated with elevated HPL. Ah, okay. So there are ones that actually have been. That is ADHD. General aggressive behavior, so people that are aggressive overall, I'm going to call that road rage. Explosive anger, bipolar sorry, bipolar disorder, depression, schizophrenia, and some of the studies called it poor stress control. Now, that interests me because everyone had stress in their life, but with the patients that had poor stress control, so they felt the stress more often, they felt it at a higher level, had elevated levels of HPL. So that's the handful of conditions that have actually been associated. Now, if I give you the list of um, signs and symptoms of what people call pyral disorder online and in clinical practice, it's going to blow your mind because it's abdominal tenderness. Explain to me how that comes through. I'm going to think it's a neurological link with B6 and zinc, yeah. synapses, et cetera. Acne, alcoholism, allergies, irregular periods, anxiety, ADHD which of course has already been shown. is a big one that they're linking and there has been some smaller research on that but not enough at the moment. Um, coarse eyebrows that one interested me. Um, <laughs> um, cold hands and feet constipation, crime and delinquency um, so the, the, I mean these
0: are, these aren't a lot of these aren't conditions they're symptoms that you know there like is aggression not. isn't a condition that's a symptom that's right
1: migraine, life intolerance, impotence, hallucinations, obesity, nail spots, like there's a huge list. Yeah. And when you look at this, and I say to you, poor dream recall, we start thinking of vitamin B six deficiency. We start looking at this list of morning nausea, intolerance to smells and odors and sound. These are all like zinc and B six deficiencies. So what's happening over the years People have been accumulating data of what they think is pyrrole disorder, putting all these symptoms and signs together and packaging it up as pyrrole disorder. But if we go back to the research, the research is not showing that. No. The limited amount of research is showing those you know, aggression, anger, bipolar, depression, schizophrenia. It's showing those conditions. Mm-hmm. So, and, and that's what concerns me is that the signs and symptoms are just rattled off have not been confirmed or linked to elevated HPL levels in clinical trials. This is all coming about from um, you know, websites and clinics, and it's good that people are doing their own research and linking it up. But my concern is a lot of these conditions, like, for example, saying obesity is related to pyrrole disorder, it's just, it just doesn't make sense to me to say that. And it's on a lot of websites because I looked up, yeah, you know, like the first fifty pages on Google, um, like in the last week, and all the different health conditions, and it's just amazingly what people are saying. And then, of course, they have the cure for it, um, which is a different story.
0: Yeah, whole different yeah, story. I love whole that. Whole
1: different story. I
0: love. I hate that word cure. Yeah, so, <laughs> I hate it when people use that.
1: <laughs> I, I do too. And the word cure is real. Like it is something that can be done, but yeah. it's very hard. Yeah. And, and to say that you can cure these signs and symptoms by clicking on the box next to the symptoms is just, it's heartbreaking because people are highly stressed and they read that and then they stop their medications or stop going to healthcare practitioners and follow this advice of this maybe overly priced supplement. Mm. Now, supplements are not cheap. I will say that. Whether it's a highest quality or an average quality, it doesn't matter. Supplements are cheap. Uh, sorry, supplements are not cheap because you need to go and buy that above your normal Diet and lifestyle, and everything else that you do, and they're not subsidised
0: by the government, so you paying full subsidized.
1: price. You paying full price. But one thing I will say to you, they will work if you get the right supplement and the right dosage, the right nutrients, the right formula for the right condition. They will work
0: rather than and the right
1: condition, <laughs> the right condition, and, and, and that's where it gets very tricky. Because you need to really break it down with the person in front of you. And this is for the practitioners and patients, and all everyone listening to this podcast. Is when you look at the um, pyrol disorder, look at the valid information out there. Um, I'm trying to present a balanced view on this one here because I do strongly believe that disordered of pyrol metabolism is a health condition, pyrol disorder, and it's overly, you know, um, diagnosed like MTHFR. Um, massive amount of diagnosis yet everyone has the enzymes, so everyone's diagnosed with MTHFR. Mm. Um, candida, Th1, Th2 imbalance like in the last 20 years there's been so many um, popular health conditions um, and this is the latest one but it, the interesting point is that I'm making is each one of these conditions are real when it's properly diagnosed and when you work out the proper symptom picture so what I'd like to do is um, you know, try and help everyone listening to this podcast with a bit of a checklist of what you can do. So when getting the um, test done, make sure there's no nutritional supplements up to a week before going for the testing. Because if you go and go and get the um, urine test done, you don't want to have any kind of nutritional support, so to say, interfering with the test results. Also, any zinc, B6, or any other similar nutrients that are found to be deficient in pyrrole disorder, even iron, etc they need to be stopped because they could alter the plasma and serum content as well. Make sure that you're relatively not stressed. and take your time getting there. Make sure you have enough water so you can produce urine, so you can do the proper urine test. But don't drink too much. If you drink drink too much, you can overhydrate, leading to diluted samples because you've got more fluid in the body. And don't underhydrate because then you don't have enough urine and it's more concentrated. So there's another artefactual result. Um, check the room that it's tested in, uh, make sure there's minimal light, um, and make sure the samples are wrapped in element and pretty much straight away and stored, and take note of, you know, earlier in the week. Um, everyone expresses HPL, so we need to look at the, um, the content in there. And if anyone's had stress in the last couple of days before the test, there's two things you can either do. Cancel the test and wait till you're relatively much better. Or what I normally suggest people do, if there's any kind of physical, mental, emotional stress, go and get the test done. And then when you're feeling much better, go and get the test done again and compare the pair. Yeah. Because if the test results are very similar on your high-stress day and your no-stress day, the test has not given you the results that you're looking for. Mm
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But if it's three times the amount on your stress day, for example, you know that your body has responded in kind to that stress. So with my checklist, I normally um, look at anything above 50 micrograms per deciliter, and I do apologize to everyone earlier, I said liter instead of deciliter, um, because then that should allow for the little elements of being stressed, driving there and relaxed. So normally when you go to a collection center, they make you sit down for 10 minutes first. If you have, have you ever noticed that? There's no one else there and you sit down waiting your yeah, turn. Yeah, <laughs> That's to allow your body to start to rest so it's not as reactive. Um, HPL is always present, so we need to look at the above 50, for example. Any kind of stress, mental, physical, emotional it, so we need to write that down in our case notes. I don't rely on one test. I may look at two or three tests, which now gets more expensive. But uh, what I'm looking at is on a high-stress day versus an average day to a really calm and collected day, if you've got it. And Excel is your friend. <laughs> if you can plot all the – some people don't like Excel, that's fine. But as a practitioner, Excel is your friend. I use it a lot. Learn how to do graphs. <laughs> yeah, learn how to do graphs. <laughs> I charted in the patient's Excel sheet, convert it to a graph, and show them. And then what I could do, I can input the data on their um, plasma zinc, serum copper, their red blood cell count, platelets, whatever else I've tested, put it into the one Excel sheet, into the one graph, and show them the beautiful flow of how their body works. So we've also got females with the menstrual cycle. They use up more iron, for example, and B6 and and zinc-related to menstruation. Yeah, Yeah, so therefore, that's going to affect it. So when's in the part of the cycle- you test for it, no one has said to do that when you actually look at the cycle. Men have a cycle as well, like the andro cycle. It's a bit harder to map, but you can just look at the anger. Um, As in the male's a little bit more sort of frustrated when sort of adrenaline and cortisol levels go up Impatience patients, rife. And, of course, you've got menopause and andropause. Mm. So you've got older people where it can be effective. Look at the plasma, zinc, and serum, copper. For example, plasma zinc is around about 12 to 20 micromoles per litre is the reference range. I'm very comfortable with that reference range. Anywhere between, based on supplements, diet, and lifestyle of the person. But if a person is heading around sort of 12, for example, or below, and their serum copper is 22, because the range is 13 to 22, you're now looking at a potential zinc deficiency metabolism issue, but that's not the only factor. They may have been sick in the last week with cold or flu. Um, look at the stress response of the person. And the other thing I do as part of my checklist is I look at, because this I look back at the research, is there any aggression, anger, ADHD, depression, um, schizophrenia, etc. in the person's um, history and also of their family history as well? Because as you know, a lot of um, health conditions are are genetically derived or weakened, amplified in a person. It's not as simple as hemophilia, for example. But some health um, conditions can actually have a weakness in the body like cardiovascular disease and can pass down through generations. It doesn't mean it's going to happen, but it's more likely to in a person. So I've been reading up recently in a lot of um, forums, online forums, uh, websites, um, podcasts, and just blogs, etc. So I, I do a lot of that in my spare time. And, um, you know, we need to sort of look at the information that's valid and the information that is available to people
2: <clears throat>
1: and look at these testing methods. So, yeah, you know, as you can tell, this is only just like a short snippet, isn't it, in this very complex health disorder. So I always say to people, you know, think about the checklist that I just said you know, are the levels greater than 50? And I think about all those signs and symptoms that I said earlier, um, plasma, zinc, serum, copper levels, maybe look at the heme, hemoglobin content, red blood cells, and general stress levels of the person and family history. And then that will actually start getting you somewhere.
0: Yeah, I just, I don't know, from what you've presented today, Brad, you don't fill me with confidence about the test. I I, I would I would so much prefer to have another marker that I could have some sort of confidence. I mean, even zinc is controversial. There's no agreed yeah. test on zinc, and it, and it wavers in the literature depending on the, the year that you read um, the research. So we're still not there yet even with zinc, but I'd so much prefer looking at something like zinc, copper, even a B6 assay that at least has some reproducibility.
1: And good of iron as well because these tests have been shown to be out of range with people that HPL
0: they wouldn't be looking at glutathione though would they they'd be looking at G- uh, GPX
1: yes and an update you can as well
0: so I just think I, I, I would so <laughs> much prefer to have something that I could reproduce and to have some sort of confidence in any therapy that I instigated to have or to show whether I'm having a benefit for that patient or not
1: that, that that's correct and we're definitely on the same page here is as, you know, as a practitioner and educator, etc. packaging myself up. I like to look at all the information available for, before I start using it. And to me, this is a real health condition, pyrrole disorder or disorder pyrrole metabolism, and I like to call it with people to start explaining it. Um, it's very complex. It's multifactorial. There's a lot of things going on. Um, the visit found elevated histamine levels in patients with elevated HPL. So is there a link with allergies or histamine as Mar- a neurotransmitter? Yeah,
0: mast cell activation syndrome. That's something I'm interested in.
1: Yeah, so mast cell activated syndrome, couple that up with, um, you know, the neurotransmitter link, the allergy component, the aggressive behavior, ADHD, skin Now we're getting a better picture. Yeah, yeah. But it's still not the picture. Do you know what I mean? It's getting there. But again, the research is not there for me to be. Uh, I can't stand here right now and say, yes, this is it. Because mm. it's a condition, well, as I said earlier, pyrol molecules have been researched since the 1920s. So it's not a new molecule. We've known about it for a long time. It's only really been since the 1970s. And again, in the late 1950s, it was noticed that people had what we call disordered pyrrole metabolism, which doesn't get mentioned anywhere. They just call it pyrrole or pyroleria. and one thing I always say to, pe- um, to people is to be careful about websites or anywhere that has some kind of sensationalisation of, of disorder or MTHFR or any of these modern health diseases um, that weren't talked about 10 years ago, for example, um, effectively talked about because people use emotive language. They sensationalise things and... They use that emotion to, let's say, trap people into the diagnosis, thinking they have this health condition. Now, there's not enough literature to show that the checklist that I've that I've put together. That's my checklist. It's not the checklist that everyone <laughs> uses <using>, because everyone's <laughs> looking at their own thing. And, uh, I've I've tried to capture as much as I can with my knowledge on the condition, but it's still not enough to cover everything.
0: Yeah, you know, I I think, okay, if there's a disordered metabolism, shouldn't we be looking back at that? Shouldn't, yeah. <laughs> like, shouldn't we be looking at the what's causing that? And, and I get that, you know, sometimes you can go down a few rabbit holes went to causation, but I just think, mm, I think we need to go take a step back from this and go back up the tree a little bit.
1: That's it. And we can look at disordered metabolism relatively easy with some basic tests, even just liver function tests, urea, electrolyte, like creatinine, like your mineral balance. There's a lot of tests you can look at that are standardized tests that measure metabolism in some form. Yeah. Then you, then you can look at your stronger biomarkers, inflammatory markers, et cetera. So there's a lot of tests we can use that are actually best um, and stable tests. They're highly recognized. Should we be testing these markers and combining the pyrrole urine test, HBO? Should we be looking at, again, people that are diagnosed um, with these serious health conditions? Should we be going to... Um, you know? Eat, institutions where people are um, being treated for their mental health, for example, and having urine sample tests and check to see whether they have a higher HPL level versus someone who doesn't have these health conditions or someone who's transient, who just has a bit of anxiety and see whether it peaks in anxiety and changes during apathy or depression. Mm. So there's a lot of things we need to look at. And women.
0: We need to do more research with women.
1: That's right, because a lot of the tests a lot of the research that people actually put online negate to tell you what the population was on, yeah, that, that's one thing they just say. We found these things, it's they didn't find it, the research found it. Yeah. Person writing the in, blog
0: in patience, <laughs> yeah. that's,
1: a, that's a different story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you don't get me started, um, they didn't do the research, someone else did. Um, but also, there's normally, um, in our age groups, so let's just say under 25, mainly in boys, and as you know, puberty starts differently for boys versus girls. Hormone levels are different. They're still growing. I like think of bone mineral density and peak bone mass is not until 21 to 25 yeah. in some people. So their body's metabolic rate is still working itself out. Yeah, Their brain and neurotransmitters, everything's still forming. So if we're relying a lot of testing on younger people and then saying, oh, that's for older people too, you know what I mean? It's like it doesn't correlate. It doesn't correlate.
0: People. No, no.
1: Yeah. Can't so for me, it, it's very hard because I want to present the best information I can for this podcast for a lot of medicine and the information that it presents to people. And we don't have enough on it to turn around and say, you know, the tests are valid or invalid. We're still finding out this information. So more research needs to be done. Um, we are doing some in Australia. I think it's in Queensland. Um, we need more research being done in a wider range of age groups, male and female, different health conditions, healthy people as well. Yeah. So you get your um, reference range effectively there. And you know, should we be testing people? And this is very expensive. Every day, over a period of let's just say a month, particularly in females, to see if the amounts directly related will have to be longer. Actually, sorry.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, related to their menstrual cycle? Is it related to in kid during a school day or a weekend or school holidays or Christmas time when your family comes to visit and you got that person you don't like, <laughs> comes to visit or something like that? And it's like all these different parameters are not being looked at. Yeah, People just look at the number on the test and it says 25 micrograms per deciliter and that's enough. And to me, it's like, no, it's not enough. Brad need to look at the person, the patient, with the person in
0: front of you. Seems like there's a heck of a lot more research to do before anybody can have confidence in this test. Brad, thank you so much for taking us through, which is a conundrum with the pyrol disorder yes, and the pyrol testing. Um, I'd love to hear feedback from our listeners actually on this, if you can, you know, whatever the social media platform is, Twitter, Facebook, whatever. Email us on info at fxmedicine.com.au if you want. Um, We'd love to hear your feedback. I mean, I can get that this one's going to spark a lot of controversy. But, um, you know, if somebody's got some better research or a better play on it, please give us some some idea because the whole point of FX Medicine is to improve the skill set and the safety of practitioners out there. So, you know, help us help you. Thanks so much, Brad, for taking us through this conundrum today with Pyrol Disorder.
1: Thank you very much, Andrew.
0: This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield Cook. Hi, I'm Dr. Mark Donohue. Join us for our new podcast series, FX Omics. We'll be exploring the new technologies of integrative medicine, including genomics, metabolomics, the microbiome, and many more fields that are transforming healthcare. We're focusing on how they apply to practitioners and how we can incorporate them into our patient care. We aim to make these exciting, and sometimes challenging fields relevant to you and your practice. Search for FXomics on your favourite podcast platform and we look forward to your company.